0: You're listening. You're listening to.
1: You're listening to.
2: You're listening to the Learning Futures. The Pod-
1: Learning Futures. The podcast. Learning Futures podcast. To the Learning Futures Podcast. I am one of your hosts and producers, Clarin Collins, and of course I'm here today with my colleague and co-host, Sean Leahy. Hey, Sean.
2: Hey Clarin, how are you today?
1: Just great. All right. So for today's show, Sean and I are joined by two of our Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College colleagues and guests to discuss the futures of equity in education. So without further delay, I'm going to introduce our guests. First, we have Daniel Liu, an associate professor in education leadership. At Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College. His research looks at expectations and conditions for equity and justice in the education pipeline through understanding the mindsets and beliefs of teachers, curriculum and instruction, and school leadership. Daniel encourages shifting mindsets of educators from deficit-based to asset-based perceptions of students of color. We are also joined by Jill Koyama, who is professor and vice dean of the Division of Educational Leadership and Innovation at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College. Her leadership practice and her research are informed by her commitment to equity, inclusion, anti-racism, and social justice. And in this first year at ASU, Jill sees great opportunity and responsibility to do work that matters alongside others who are constructing equitable, multivocal, innovative, and dynamic learning environments, MLFTC, and more broadly at ASU. And in addition to their roles at the university, both Daniel and Jill are involved with organizations at the state and local level, including school and refugee organizations respectively. Ooh, welcome to both of you.
0: Thank you, oh. glad to be here.
2: Well, this is, this is, I can tell right now, this is going to be just a power packed episode here. So <laughs> <We> <laughs> Daniel are, and Jill, welcome.
1: <laughs> we are excited to have you both here with us today, given each of your expertise and thoughtfulness on the topics of equity and justice in education. And while the term equity is very broad, especially given the more recent concerted effort in education on DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion, each of you, Daniel and Jill, have been committed to working in the equity space for much of your careers. And while we'll have opportunities to discuss some of your work today, um, would you mind briefly sharing in what capacity your work focuses on equity just to help list Get a sense of how each of you define and support equity in education. Jill, do you want to take that first?
0: Sure. So I'm really fortunate in my work to work with migrants and refugees and um, who are often marginalized in educational settings as well as some other societal institutions. And so for me, equity is focus is always asking, you know, for whom is this education? Is it accessible? What are the opportunities? Is it fair? Um, And so with refugees and migrants, that often leads me to spaces outside of schools because there's so much intersection with refugee organizations, food banks, uh, healthcare, and and schools.
1: Awesome, thank you. Daniel?
3: Um,
1: As for me, I come into this work as um,
3: uh, an immigrant student who grew up in uh, the city of Berkeley, highly diverse and heterogeneous, culturally and linguistically, I went into a school system that had an English only approach um, to education. And so, growing up, I had all kinds of barriers and difficulties in learning the language, but also in excelling um, in academic content. And through those experiences, I had the fortunate um, opportunity to meet many friends and um, people in the classroom who have endured a lot of different type of expectations. Some students who are succeeding and excelling in all dimensions tend to get the most resources and the highest highest expectations. They're usually seen as students with the greatest potentials, while other students like myself are consistently being treated with low expectations. And so through those perspectives, um, I bring these lenses to engage with scholarship, but also in my work as a school board president currently in East Los Angeles at the Los Angeles College College Prep Academy in trying to understand how to think about ways in which we create uh, positive expectations uh, with and for students and families, um, especially with those who are coming from the most marginalized um, uh, communities. Um, and also, um, I think the, the issue of access to higher education is something that holds dearly for me because most of my friends growing up um, back in Berkeley did not go to college. And so uh, given the fact that I was able to be one of the very few um, from um, my particular community to be able to be a first generation faculty, I feel that sense of Personal responsibility, but also commitment um, to do the kind of work that will benefit the community that that I come from.
0: Daniel, when you were talking, reminds me. I think your awareness of how the world saw you and positioned you happened so much earlier for you. Like I, I'm Papa, so I'm I'm half Japanese, and and I don't think I realized it until later. Even though I also am a first generation, you know, biracial, queer woman. Um, I think that my realization didn't come until I actually went to college. Mm. So in that way, it was very transformative for me. And just like you, it shaped all the work I've done since then. Yeah. I, I
3: agree. I think college was also, um, there was a lot of eye-opening um, of, you know, moments there in college, especially in my undergrad. I was very fortunate to make it to UC Berkeley as an undergrad. And I remember having um, a conversation there with a residential assistant who was serving as as the floor advisor in the dorm that I lived in. And I was telling him about all the um, civil rights leaders and how I've been influenced in thinking about education by by the Black Power of Movement and other type of movement, social movements. he asked me specifically, you know, like, who, who, who are some of the Asian American um, scholars or civil rights leaders that you look up to, and there was a long pause. Um, following that because I could remember that I read all the uh, speeches by Malcolm X I you know was very much into reading about you know uh, the feminist, feminist movement and other type of ethnic studies. Movement. movements. And I, you know, I I hardly ever see people like myself in in school curriculum, um, in the ways in which people um, understand the type of educational needs and aspirations I come with. Um, And I think in my work now with school leaders, I think a lot of those expectations still resonate in how um, they see and subsequently treat affluent, economically um, affluent students and those who are um, more marginalized, economically, politically, um, and otherwise. So, so I, I, you know, I think college is also another, um, you know, uh, moment where I felt like it was um, it really. Raise a lot of questions for me as well in terms of what is equity and how do we go about to enact that and think about that uh, with the communities that have been marginalized.
1: Thank you both so much for sharing your own personal experiences and we are. really. Really lucky to have you here today, not only on the podcast, but at the Teachers College, and I look forward to hearing you talk more about your work and experiences as we get through this. Um, I'm going to ask to take this back kind of to a macro level for a second as we get started. Um, So earlier this year, the Teachers College hosted a UNESCO panel. With the commitment to the future of education, MLFTC has recently launched an initiative focused on learning futures and the UNESCO panel was at one of our first kickoff events. For a bit of context for our listeners, Learning Futures at MLFTC proceeds from the conviction that in a world experiencing faster and bigger change, we need education leaders who can make informed, ethical, and effective decisions about what to do and not do.
2: Yeah, and I think also, Clarin, just to kind of, for, just to butt in here a little bit too, and also provide just a little bit of, of context too. So that was, you know, a wonderful um, panel that we had we had uh, invited, but also to kind of back up just even a little bit more, perhaps, and just give a little background on what that UNESCO report uh, was and where it, where it came from. So this the UNESCO report we're referring to um, was just released in, in uh, earlier in 2022 here, um, and it was titled "Reimagining Our Futures Together: A New Social Contract um, for Education." Um, as far as I understand, too, it was in development for about two years or so. Um, which you know they consulted a lot of uh, governments and institutions, or organizations, and even citizens um, from a global perspective to sort of build this new social contract for education uh, with the aim of building a peaceful, just, and sustainable future. Um, and just, just to, again, further sort of cement kind of the context of where this was coming from, just a short quote from their provided summary from the report was, Um, And I'll read it uh, here, uh, quote, this new social contract must be grounded in human rights, and based on principles of non discrimination, social justice, respect for life, human dignity and cultural diversity, it must encompass an ethic of care, reciprocity and solidarity, it must strengthen education as a public endeavor and a common good. Um, So kind of linking this back to our colleges event where we invited um, some of the lead authors of that. Uh, report to come and speak and hold a panel um, and give them the opportunity to guide this this conversation around questions and reactions to the report. And so, and I think, you know, right before we had this panel back in February, we had sent out a call for um, a group of, you know, faculty and people associated with our college to 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 take a look at that report and then provide, you know, their own sort of measured response to that report. And I think that's something we'd like to, we'd like to ask, you know, Jill and Daniel about here, here today.
1: Yeah, each of you provided a thoughtful, critical response to the report. Um, And while each of you provided something unique, you both referenced education for whom and for what as a fundamental question that that guides your work. So could you each start by talking us through your thoughts? Um, Remembering that not all of our listeners may be familiar with report. We don't need you to cite the report, but just kind of give us that context when you think about your responses of education for whom and for what.
0: Jill, you wanna go ahead? First of all, I loved reading yours, Daniel. Um, Actually, all of them together were quite interesting, all the responses because of different entry points and different perspectives. So for me, that report, which was calling for a new social contract um, for us to recommit or commit to education equity, but education broadly attainable. And I think it was, Hopeful in a way that it was a call to action. But it was also, you know it was sad to see the disparities, the continued disparities, and to project forward um, the greater disparity that will probably happen with climate change for for instance. And so for me, as I'm reading it, thinking about the populations that I mostly work with, refugees, and thinking about, is this for them, right? Will they be included in this? And within that, even, I mean, recent examples can can speak to this a bit. So, you know, in Ukraine, so we have probably 4.6 million refugees from Ukraine. More than half of them are children and a lot of support is coming, but yet we see things in African countries and if Afghanistan and the response is not the same. So even within migrants and refugee populations, education, all kinds of things, but education because we're talking about it, are not accessed equally or offered equally. And so that was just my pause when I was reading the report because it was from a very Western lens. Um, Here's education, here's what it looks like, here's how we deliver it. Uh, So in that way also it felt uh, passive in some way to the learner. Um, Yeah, and so that was just my thinking about it. I think people worked very hard for many years on it. I think they tried to cover as much as they could and I want to be hopeful that we will be able to do that. I'm not sure with our existing structures and politics and capitalism that it can happen.
3: Um,
0: I am also inspired
3: by Jo's take um, on education. Um, she's coming from a laboratory perspective in raising these questions, and I really appreciate reading her comments. Um, you know, in the last few years, I've been drawing on the work of Charles Mills, a a Black political philosopher, around his work around the domination contract and the racial contract, which stipulates that there is a certain level of of our society coming to be comfortable and and thinking that in a social contract or a, a stratified social contract is somehow acceptable at current time. And this means that you know some of the issues that the the report has raised um, in addition to the current social stratification as a result of the pandemic. um, has really raised the question as to what kind of social contract, are we talking about who's who gets to be the authors of those contract if we were to revise it and transform it and based on whose term. It is that we start to reconsider this social contract? And how are we going to uh, create the necessary conditions to be able to share power, but also to create equity in rethinking the ascriptive social contract and all of its stratifications? And for school leaders, you know, how can we collectively work across um, uh, intersectional differences, but and also these political constructed differences as a way to interrogate social systems that is currently perpetuating the social contract. And so I, I think I think these are some of the questions that um, are big questions that I feel like have left unanswered. But perhaps is meant for all of us at the individual level to make particular decisions to thoughtfully and intentionally think about what would a um, equitable social justice contract, what would that look like? Start to enact that from the from the local on the way up.
2: You know, so one thing I'd be curious to ask too for, for everybody, I mean, I, we, I think we've all read it too. So, uh, Claire, and I'll, you know, this, I think this goes for you as well. But, you know, Jill and Daniel, when you read through the report and, was there anything in particular that surprised you or was this really just more of the confirmation of all of these existing issues and things that we sort of already knew? And I mean, from from some certain aspects, it's nice to see it collected like that. And you can see the the effort, you know, Jill, to your point where you can see the work that went into this to go as broad and as many different, I mean, for me, it was interesting to go through some of the technology elements um, that they really highlighted. And, and, and for, in that part, when I was reading it, it was more like, this wasn't new information, but it was another way of trying to put it in front of hopefully policymakers to raise these sort of awareness. So I guess my question is around, I guess it's twofold. One would be, was there anything like truly surprising um, out of this, or was it more of just, like I said, things that you have already, that are already known that were just sort of brought to light maybe in a a different um, venue. And then two, this idea of the social contract, you know, I, I too, I think Jill, I think it was when you were commenting that it was a little bit sad also to sort of just realize, because it was kind of hard to find hopeful pieces that weren't just cautionary, or, or uh, what's the term I can use here? Um, uh, sort of presumptive cautionary tales that are about to unfold. Um, is a social contract enough? Like, how do we go from that? I mean, where, where is the action from going from, you know, Daniel, to your point there as when we try to turn this from this call to action of, of a social contract, what does that actually look like? And how do we make any, any forward progress, uh, in our own local, whether that be super local or state level or national level, or, you know, geographic level, how do we make progress with this, with this social contract? So it's a loaded two-parter.
0: <laughs> um let me, I'd like to jump in here a bit about this social contract. So as far as being actionable, so that's one of the reasons I actually liked, although also a real downers, a bit depressing, the three pieces of the climate report that came out. Because in each one, they focused on a different thing. So knowledge, the last one, they focused on action. And it essentially, if you've read that report, unlike the UNESCO report on education, it said, if we do this, this might happen. If we don't do this, this could happen. And I think, you know, education is certainly a a different sort of creature. And, you know, it's not a closed system at all. And so there weren't those kinds of things. So it didn't strike me as new or even particularly creative. However, I think I looked at it with different... A different lens because of the current position I'm in in the college so it's one thing to to be a faculty member and to be a political activist to be a community member and to be doing things in a very small localized way so I'm an ethnographer so I do qualitative work but to think about what is my responsibility to the college and to my colleagues and the students and also to ASU and that in the broader community. What is my responsibility given that all of this now has been given to me in one huge chunk and I have read it. And so what is the charge to me? So in that way, yeah, in, the, in that way, that prompted me to turn some of it into tangible things. What could I do in this division? What could I do in this grant? What could I do? So again, small, right? I'm not, I'm not tackling the whole thing. But that's what seems doable to me. Um, yeah, and it, it also probably will make me feel a bit better. I don't know if that's enough. But that's how I was thinking about it. Daniel?
3: I, I agree. I, 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 th- I was surprised um, in terms of just reading how willing the this group of, you know, um, thinkers were willing to come out to name and acknowledge some of the systemic inequities that were happening, uh, some of the global trends that also impact the local. Um, So I I really applaud the authors uh, for that. But I also feel in agreement with Joe that there is a lack of um, capturing of the ongoing um, effective policymaking, policy framing, and transformative practices that already exist and how do we build on them? How do we, you know, um, support these efforts and and create new social movements in ways that will, you know, bring about change? Um, I agree with Joe that, you know, a lot of this change comes from within and my personal philosophy is that it needs to come from ourselves first, we have to be able to think, reflect, and make determinations about the kind of decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis. Um, Judy Austin um, inspired me to think that a theory and practice of equity and social justice is fraudulent when it's not fully addressed the the bigger question about humanity. And I and I try to think about how to think about humanity in terms of the not yet imagined but also in its fullest term and try to figure out how to make decisions that will reinforce this you know alternative notion of what humanity is because the current social contract you know uh, defines humanity in a very stratified way right if you don't make enough money you're less important in society, if you're over a certain age, then you're not as valued as an employee, um, and if you don't have certain income, you know you don't get to have, um, you know um, you don't get to see the doctor if you need to, right? You get to live with pain, um, and so you know I, I think, as a society, we need to have larger conversations. But I think. Local efforts um, is taking place at different pockets of hope, um, as Paulo would will, will call it. Um, but I, I, I feel like the, the next step would be for both you know the authors of this report, but also for people like myself um, and the people that I'm in coalition with um, to capture what are some of those you know um, Uh, efforts that are on the ground that is making these differences Um, because obviously you know I myself was able to you know come into this you know very privileged position of being an associate professor and I feel like you know um, not to reinforce this sense of meritocracy but you know change is possible.
1: Thank you both and I appreciate Jill how you reflected and positioned it within your role and things that you could do or act on. And Daniel, you referenced you know, what changes can you make despite some of the larger systemic things that we're up against. So I'm curious from each of you, we can kind of transition from the report now and think more about your work and, and your ideas. Um, this might be a lofty question, but what do you think either at the larger systems level are some key factors that could help advance equity in your spaces or, what are some examples of things that you've done to help make advances? So how have you kind of internalized and acted on some of these larger challenges?
2: We aim big.
1: We sure do.
0: (laughs) Wow, I know we'd have a better conversation if Daniel and I were having Korean barbecue right now, but let's see. We can pretend. We can pretend. (laughs) (laughs) I I think, um, I'm not sure this is exactly, speaking to your question, Claence, so please redirect me. But there is a, a way that I, that I when I do work with refugees where um, I think, of course, my unit of concern is is the refugee learner or the refugee family. But in some way, you, I need to decenter humans even a bit, and it goes back to your comment about technology, Sean, right. So what are the interactions um, between humans and nonhumans and ideas and discourses? and use that that to actually put back and not put back, but to share, right, in in share the decision making and the agency and in research, even with the refugees. So for example, uh, we had, we used Google Maps, nothing really complex at all, and created a a little app around that. And so that the refugee students could ping like where they were going to the dentist, where they could get You know clothing where they could do this and then we took and we overlaid the bus maps on that and we could literally show that it would take an hour and 49 minutes for them to go to the store and to school and so in essence they were generating the data they were generating the solutions to the problems they encountered every day in their lives and so i don't know if that's what you were thinking about but to me that first of all many of us were not aware many of us who do not take public transportation or or live in the neighborhoods that most of the refugees are resettled in had no idea that it would take that long, that it could be so arduous. And then also what we found out through that, that, that app is that places closed all the time. So maybe there was a place that they always went to to get ESL classes, but they were very temporal. And we hadn't realized the degree Mm -hmm. so i'm not sure if that's getting at your question but it it does it
1: It does because it's by trying to look at by trying to actually work and support and help people you uncovered part of issues with the systems or the structures that were set up so that is like um yes you answered it And, and i
0: think the refugees were so excited that they could actually do it yeah. Uh, you know, technology wise, you know, these are 13 to 18 year olds beyond me, beyond what I can ever imagine. They they seem like, you know, AI to me. Um, and <laughs> they were so quick to say, oh, you should have done this or you should have built this in or you could have done that. And so they were also like doing that reflective piece of how can we make this work better? Then we'll get better data. Then. Yeah. So it was a really fun process. It was like a year long process. Mm.
2: Yeah, I I was just going to chime in on just a a piece there too. I mean, I think one of the elements here, the technology angle, so I'll I'll just bring just a little bit of focus on some of the things that anytime you throw that out there, I get all excited. And then I want to talk for hours on that, um, which is why we created a podcast, but you know, hey, um, but one of the things that's real interesting, especially as we continue to move in this direction of, you know, the, the, the increasing um, sort of rapid development of in disruptions and new technologies. Um, you know, we start getting into the space, the fourth industrial revolution, which is where a lot of my work sort of sort of looks at this new era. But one of the main challenges um, to that point is how do we ensure a humanistic approach with this technology? Because we've seen in the past, if we look historically, right? If we look across the you know the wind the windfall and the disruptions that the previous um, uh, industrial revolutions have brought, they're not evenly, they're not even close to being evenly distributed. Um, and those who are in those lower SES, those people who are already marginalized tend to get pushed even, even farther out. Um, and so that's a real challenge as, you know, we have a lot of advancement and development going on is how do we ensure that we are taking that humanistic approach that we're bringing those vulnerable populations, those, those people who represent vulnerable populations, but also taking it into consider, I mean, even natural vulnerabilities in terms of the climate and things. And, and how do we bake that into that process and get these people involved? I love hearing that story about you working with the, the refugee and bringing them into the process. It wasn't a prescriptive thing of here's the tool, here's how you go to it, but bringing them into the fold. And I think that is only going to become even more important um, as we continue to move forward, which echoes a lot of some of these other Um, initiatives that are going around too with this idea of, you know, diversity and equity in in like the STEM fields, for example, and, you know, the idea of those missing millions and we're a lot of so many people are not being represented um, in the innovation, in the development, in that process. But as we continue to move forward from, so I guess my question, if I turn this into one is Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, from in Daniel, your perspective, I think would be interesting to grab here too is from your position of what we can do and what we can do with, in our university, in our college, with our students, with our research programs. How do we start to bring those, those, those marginalized voices forward? Um, like, what can we do? What can other faculty, what can other practitioners, what can we do? How do we, how do we make this happen?
3: Uh, well, uh, these are big questions uh, and very good ones. I, I think I'm good are asking one,
2: them. I'm not good at answering them. I'll just be very honest. <laughs>
3: I think first of all, we need to have a clear some kind of clarity around the purposes of technology or the purposes of expect, you know, of education, what are we expecting education and technology to do. Right. And I think just based on the idea that we're working with society within a set of structural limit limitations. Um, but also the ongoing disparities around access and so forth. I I think if we were to rethink technology from the perspective of problem solving, then I think we would have a very different approach to technology with a understanding that it's going to take us and take our society to a different end. And, uh, you know, I, I say that, by suggesting that in this gets to your question, is thinking about how can we diversify our own views, right? How can we actively be self-reflective and reflexive enough where we're constantly decentering ourselves and recentering ourselves with the perspective and experiences of others, right? Who live and experience and endure this stratified social contract you know, that Charles Mills keep talking about the domination of such contracts instead of a liberatory contract that Jill was referring to in her comments, right, to the report. So, you know, I, I think, you know, asking larger questions about purpose, expectations and problem solving, and then start creating, you know, policies and enacting, you know, new practices, you know, that get at those know, problem solving aspect of it will help us to create and generate uh, new solutions, um, new understanding of how society can work. Um, But I think these are larger questions that we need to ask as a society. Let me just say that right now, the the school that I'm working with, the Los Angeles College primary academy, they're actively, you know, reading, um, you know, Uh, alternative, you know, perspectives, Um, authors that may have historically been banned, you know, from schools, um, you know, they're actively engaging with an assortment of ideas for students to be able to find themselves, right, and to be able to interrogate these ideas to make sense of society, but also possibilities, right. And and I I think, I think we need to be rethinking about education um, in those ways. have a diversification of the authors that we read, the voices that we're hearing, um, and the people that we're interacting with to tell us about the terms of the social contract that they experience, but also how they're reimagining that social contract.
0: Your your response, Dana, also reminds me that, that often we talk about education and and we're talking about schooling or formal schooling. And we know education. It's much broader than that and includes culture and societal norms and gender values. And so I think um, some of the things that you and I, Daniel, talk about and are talking about now is a broader conception of, of education uh, as opposed to to, I don't want to say just schooling, but it's not limited to formal schooling because we know many learners learn more things from their grandparents or their religious leaders or their soccer coach or their, right? And, and in constantly engaging in the world, we learn all kinds of things. Um, but yes, we do have a thing called, you know, public education or formal education uh, that's schooling that is also important and it is sometimes the easiest thing to target, right? And, yeah. I
3: agree, I think education needs to be multifaceted, and so does so does schooling, right? I need to start thinking about how that can be an extension of what students learn in the community, right? Um, you know I, I, I keep coming back to you know how educators' expectations of students always differentiates based on our beliefs about the students' learning capacities. And you know when I Hang out with teenagers, you know, I learned that they can memorize and understand a song. They can even write their own songs like overnight, right? And then their teachers that's been assigned to them to teach in the classroom will make comments like, well, this person can't read and can't write. But I look at that at this juncture, right? And that differences in expectations. And in, in trying to figure out, well, what's the difference here, right? Why, what is it that is inspiring young people to learn, whether in the classroom or outside, right? And how can we begin to think about those forms of learning and to be able to blur those lines between school and other type of educational spaces?
2: So that's a really interesting piece because I think, um, you know, I've looked at stuff in the past as well, where you really see this disconnect between, I mean, as you're noticing, right, the students are able to perform and learn and demonstrate, but not in the way during that formalized structure and really starting to work for uh, on the educational side of things is really trying to work to allow, like, looking for affordances of technology or other elements or, or pedagogical structures to allow students to engage in those performances of understanding. How can they demonstrate they know these things? Um, and the other piece I thought was interesting, too, that, and this might, I don't want to take us down a different (laughs) rabbit hole or anything here, but also the role, I think the the, the conversation right there around education being far broader and far bigger than the formalized schooling um, is also the role of the schools. And I'd be curious, you know, I get really excited talking with you and Jill, because I feel like I could, I just want to start asking you all these questions to get your, get your takes. But what about in terms of that that element of having that broader education piece? Do you feel today that the, uh, and again, we're going to paint with a very broad brush here, um, that the school itself, the school experience, the formalized education part is getting closer to or further removed from the communities to which they sit in? Again, I don't want to answer that. So I'm asking you to, <laughs> but that's something, I mean, I think that's an interesting piece because when I think about um, from, a, from a total futures perspective and thinking about, okay, let's move the, the, the timeline marker down, you know, 75 years, maybe 100 years, you know, asking those questions. Well, what role does a school play in learning or in, in education in terms of the broader piece? And one of the things that, you know, sort of thinking and working towards in an aspirational element right, that the school is an extension in a place where individualized learning and opportunities to mix and and to grow, it becomes salient, but it's not a separate element necessarily, given the, you know, the increasing ubiquity and information and and access, but a place that would extend and provide opportunities for a community to engage as sort of like a, a centralized place. If you remove, and again, if we think 100 years from now, right, if we remove the requirement for for formalized learning to take place in a centralized location but one more of the model we could sometimes throw around is more of like a distributed computing model where that formalized education can happen at the at the fringe or the edge which would in that model would be the individual student rather than them being required to come into this this place this school this centralized location to, to have those experiences so i'm i'm all often really trying to think about well what 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 does in 100 years from now, so let's fast forward the, you know, the, the clock to twenty one twenty two. How what is, a, what is going to a school or going to a formalized learning environment? What does that look like? Where do we want it to be?
0: I think I know where I want it to be. I'm not sure that's the direction it's going in. I think you know, Dean Basile says all the time, we can't keep doing education like we're doing it. And I, and I would agree with that. I don't necessarily have as clear direction or answers as I, I think that she does. Um, with her expertise. But when I'm thinking about it, I think, you know, schools as institutions, as structures, would have to give up some power and we would have to, in some way, escape the capitalistic nature, right, of higher education uh, in order for us to distribute learning across communities. Um, But couldn't that be true? I mean, we do some of that now. So, like, maybe you can take a coding a couple coding classes and that can be an on-ramp to our, our masters and, and that happens. Coding for equity can be an on-ramp to the, the masters in education. So could we have a bunch of those on and off-ramps that people can put together in a way that is useful for themselves, but also for their collective or their community? Um, and do we need to, I, you know, I think the pandemic has made us think this, do we need to have huge structures like actual buildings? um in, in which they have learners. I, and i'm not I'm not sure that we do, but I'm also not sure that we don't. for For me, I,
3: I feel like we need to rethink the relationship between school and, it, and as well as other educational spaces and democracy. I think formal schooling um, is, is necessary for a variety of social reasons. Um, and I think you know, John Dewey has talked a lot about that, right? Um, He's mentioned that, you know, when schools, you know, um, becomes too rigid, then it becomes, you know, oppressive, right? And yet school has a responsibility to socialize students to a particular social contract, right? And so, you know, we need to be able to rethink what that relationship is. And secondly, is who has expertise? You know, I think this goes back to the question of expectations. Oftentimes we don't think students and families, especially those from marginalized communities, have knowledge and have expertise. So we need to be able to rethink what that is as well. And finally, I want to just draw on my good friend Pedro Nagura, who always inspired me to think about you know, the fact that um, school is a place that all young people come to right so it, it is a is a place that presents a particular um, possibility for people to reimagine what a future society will look like and start to create a new system and structures to look like that future right so that you know our next generation can be. Um, you know, the visionary that we're, that I'm personally expecting them to be. Um, So I I think those relationships and how we redefine education um, is important. I think, in part, you know, Dean Basile's notions of education and educating the whole child um, helped me to think about that as well.
1: I'm going to borrow or go off of your optimism for the next generation, Daniel, and ask this next question to you both. So when you think towards the future and education related to equity, what are you most hopeful for? Julie? Don't yeah, go, so I, for <laughs> I was thinking, don't hard, have but, hope. But, I was like, oh, our time must be up. No, so, um, <laughs> I think,
0: you know, <laughs> I am repeatedly um, dismayed at, at, at my generation and what we did in feminism and in, in You know, sexual rights, um, in race relations. And I'm disappointed only in that this is all the further we have gotten. And yet I have hope that future generations will also pick up the mantle. They will do the things that are important to them. They will be creative. They will do it so much differently than we did. I mean, literally, you know, I was part of ACT UP and we would Super glue condoms on school doors because you know so we do things like that. we didn't do there was no social media, there was no cell phone there, you know like this is how old I am and and we found our way, and I believe that the next generations will are they are finding their way. if you look at I mean, I was never the kind of activist that I see some middle schoolers being right i I just probably couldn't have imagined breaking that many rules um but so I have hope for them. I don't have hope for what they're up against.
1: Mm. Daniel, how about you?
0: I, I visit a lot
3: of schools and I sit in classrooms and I have done a lot of observations um, for many years now. And one of the things I am amazed by is coming to realize every time when I'm there that I realized that young people know sometimes and a lot of times um, that they know a lot more than the adults, um, you know, and when I was teaching in the high school, for example, oftentimes I would run into technology issues, and students will raise their hands offering to problem solve, right, they're able to hack into systems, they're able to, you know, go into sites that they're not supposed to, right. And 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 students know about the domination contract as well, they know the material realities and and how people live differently by neighborhood right, they know how they're being treated differently by different adults in their lives right and. And and so, and so I think the question then is you know that shift, I think that shift the responsibility then to us as adults to respond to what they already know right and what they need to know to be that agents of change right and so when we go back to think about equity you know some of the ideas that i often um, uh, utilize in my own classrooms is you know you don't brush your teeth and every tooth in the exact same way right because everybody has different set of needs right everybody's unique you don't give young people, the exact same haircuts, right? Because they all have different type of aspirations and creativity and the need to explore and learn other type of hairstyles that might look good for them, right? And then the other is, you know, you don't prescribe education like a medication, right? In thinking that one, a one size fits all medication is gonna solve everybody's problems, right? And, and, and so, you know, I, you know, I I often utilize those type of examples um, to kind of get at, you know, some of the questions that I think we often overlook um, as educators in thinking that equity is about giving everybody the exact same treatment and the exact same resources. Um, And so so I, I think these are some of the things that we need to be asking is then, How do we begin to work across areas of difference to foster equity and justice, given that students are bringing knowledge to the classroom, to learning spaces, right? And given what their families are teaching them at home, right? how do we begin to respond to their context, right? Social, political, environmental, technological, and so forth.
1: Thank you guys both so much. For your time and your thoughtfulness. We are near the end of wrapping up, but if I can ask one more question, assuming you both still have time, could you tell us a little bit about some work or plans you guys have to collaborate? I heard there's something in the works. Any, anything you're able to share with us and how you two came to, together on this?
0: I'm I'm happy to to begin this, Daniel, but jump in at any time. So um, as we've seen across the country, and in particular lately in Arizona, there are uh, several anti-LGBTQ plus uh, bills that have passed. So here we've had two anti-trans bills passed, I think SB 1165, I believe, is the athletics one. And then the one that's deeply concerning is SB 1138, which is denying gender affirming health care. And so... You know, as, as this is going on, and, and as Daniel and I were talking about it, and with a good colleague, um, uh, Madeline Edelman, we decided, okay, well, what can we do? Again, like, okay, this is a huge thing. What can we do? And we thought one way, we are a college of education, right? And what would it be if we tried to infuse across curriculum issues of LGBTQ+, plus LGBTQ plus scholars, uh, critiques, activism. What if we were able to weave that through curriculum rather than having a separate class?
1: Right.
0: right. What would that look like? And if we could weave that through learning opportunities for our faculty, for our you know our students, how could we involve them? So anyway, Daniel and I said about uh, with Maddie to try and think, what would that look like could we do that? Would there be other people who would want to join us? Um, and so that—that's what we've been talking about. And maybe Daniel, I don't know if you have any updates because you and Maddie have been working on it more intensely.
3: Yeah, um, I, I came into this work, um, uh, I, I you know, based on some of the conversations I was having with some of the scholars at ARA last year. Um, I was the chair of the Division A um, uh, the Division A Equity Diversity and Inclusion and Action Committee. and we brought a bunch of um, uh, scholars from you know LGBTQIA backgrounds who was doing that work um, to share with us about some of the work that they're doing and it really led me to think that you know it's time for us you know to really engage with this, you know, community that has long been overlooked or has been discouraged, you know, from um, where educators have been discouraged from getting involved with, you know. Um, so I we've been working with um, Malin Adelman um, at the School of Social Transformation and and um, there's some brain there's been a lot of brainstorming about curriculum um, on that end. Um, I still feel like you know, to start off, we may need to think about, you know, curriculum in terms of whether we want to, um, in, you know, embed curriculum across courses, so that one would reinf- reinforce another uh, within a given program. Um, or do we need specific classes um, to start off? And maybe it's both, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not either or. or um, but um, I think this is the time now to um, begin that work of equity and social justice.
1: Thank you, guys. Again, we're lucky to have you here, not only today as our guests, but as colleagues in the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College working on and, and being so thoughtful in your equity work that you're supporting our future leaders and our educators in the college. So we can't thank you enough for being here today and for your time.
0: Thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you.
2: Thank you again. Um, so as we just close out, I just want to extend an offer, uh, Daniel or Jill, for either of you, if you want to, if there's anything you want to plug that we haven't talked about, uh, any projects or books or things or papers that you've read that are really exciting that you'd like to share. Um, otherwise, you can always just plug ourselves, the Learning Futures Podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to check to see if there's anything else that we didn't touch on that you'd like to just throw out there for our listeners to, let, you know, make them aware of.
0: And we're going to give a shout out to Glisten. Arizona, because they're definitely keeping all the legislation and bills in the public eye. And they're a fabulous organization dedicated absolutely to to education in the ways that we've been talking about it.
3: And I I think uh, it would be great to to also give a shout out to um, the educational leadership program. Um, Our faculty have been great in engaging with these very difficult conversations and decision-making about our program redesign. And I, I want to make sure that they get acknowledged um, uh, somewhere in the podcast as, as well.
2: Yeah, excellent. And I'm sure, you know, there's going to be tons of interest over the amazing work that you all have been doing, plus all the things that we've mentioned in terms of the UNESCO report, the responses to that. Um, you know, all of the things that you just plugged right here, we'll be sure to drop um, all that information into our show notes. Um, So anyone who's listening can go there and grab that information. Um, Because it's the worst thing ever is to try to regurgitate a a spoken URL. So we'll make sure we put all that into our our show notes. So everyone can follow uh, the appropriate things and stay up to date and kind of check back in. Um, And I think I can speak on behalf of the Learning Futures podcast, where I say we will love to have you both back Um, and and to continue the conversation because I think there is so much here that we can continue talking. So, Clarine, do you want to take us out?
1: That's a wrap.
2: (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Learning Futures podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and details. If your podcast player allows for reviews, please leave us a five-star review. Let us know how we're doing. Tell the world what you think. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll be sure to never miss an episode. The Learning Futures podcast is produced at the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. The executive producer is Dr. Sean Leahy, and the show is produced by Dr. Clarine Collins and Karina Munoz-Baltazar.